What is up, everybody? We are live with Keith from Monetary Metals. We're currently live only on Twitter. I've become a little bit too spicy for YouTube. I don't know if, Keith, you realize how dangerous of a channel you reached out to today, but uh, it's an honor to have you on, and we're going to get into some financial market stuff. Well, thanks for having me. Hell yeah. So let's get into it. I look at the market and I've not touched the thing basically since the last financial collapse. I, I mean, not that I've done anything particularly smart with my money, but when I look at everything that's happened, I, I just think it's fed. I, I think all the growth, it's just fed. It's market manipulation. This thing's a house of cards and it's coming down, but I don't really know any of the particulars on this. So just to kind of start out with your prediction looking to 2022 or even beyond, I, are you a fan of the stock market or are you kind of bearish about it and also think this thing's coming tumbling down? Well, I think ultimately there's a crisis brewing, but whether that crisis occurs in 2022 is a whole different question. So would I short the stock market? Absolutely not. Would I bet my life savings that the stock market can only go up? Absolutely not. So the problem is it's become harder and harder to make any money between all the regulations, rising tariffs and lockdown whiplash and green energy restrictions and on and on and on. <clears throat> so companies aren't necessarily making more money, but the um, as the interest rate falls, then the discount rate, so you have to look at companies' future earnings, discount them to present, and that gives you essentially the present value. The discount rate keeps falling. So the same dollar worth of earnings um, you know, projected out into the future is worth more and more in the present. So stock prices go up. People who are betting on stock prices to rise from here, whether or not they realize it, are just betting that the discount rate keeps falling. Will that be the case in 2022? Maybe, but there's obviously very significant risk that won't be. And then um, if the discount rate were to suddenly rise drastically, that would be a stock market crash. Okay, so I... I, I did get a finance degree. I've not heard the word discount rate in probably 10 years. Uh, so I'm going to need a little bit of education here, but I believe what you're basically saying is that the way that they're pricing things are around a lower interest rate. And so the, like the forward earnings is overinflated. I, I, well, let, let's define some terms. Let's start with the discount rate, which I think just revolves around the interest rate, right? Yeah. Well, right. So let, let's say um, if I'm going to give you a dollar right now, what's the worth of that dollar? It's $1. Right. If I'm going to give you a dollar in one year from today, what is that worth today? A apart from the credit risk that maybe I'm, I'm not good for the credit, let's assume you can you can guarantee that the dollar is going to be there. Well, you wouldn't pay a dollar today for something that's going to be paid a dollar in, in uh, a year from now. Right. You pay something less. That difference is the discount rate. And I argue that the discount rate is essentially based off the market rate of interest. Every time the market rate of interest falls, the discount rate generally falls as well. So that same dollar of earnings next year is worth more today with a lower discount rate. Okay. And so because the current interest rate is so low, like, so where, where's the equation wrong for everyone kind of evaluating the stock market? Well, what's wrong is number one, they think that, oh, well, you know, good economy means rising stocks and rising stocks means good economy everything's you know getting better and better and better and that's why stocks have been going up when in fact stocks have been going up primarily because the discount rate's been falling so they're they're, they're fundamentally wrong on on that assumption equating the stock market with the economy and then secondly the lower the discount rate goes the greater the risk that the discount rate could suddenly revert to the mean and snap upwards and if the discount rate were to double then stock prices would be cut in half so there's that risk you know, you're playing with, you know, imagine you're on a ship and there's a, a cable you know, tied to something else like another ship. And there's a lot of tension on that cable. Just by standing next to it, you're taking a certain risk of decapitation. You know, if that cable were to suddenly let go, you know, it doesn't just drop to the deck, right? I mean, it, you know, it's a violent uh, whiplash. Um, Got you. And is part of that also, I, I guess, if yield existed and people could kind of move out to bonds that, you know, people would start pulling out of the stock market? Or is this solely just kind of revolves around, I, I guess, the equation of the discount rate? I don't even know if I am, am saying this correctly. Well, I mean, everything's connected. So when the Fed does QE, they're essentially buying bonds off of uh, the public and the financial institutions and taking bonds out of people's hands. So, you know, 
if, if you wanted to hold the bond, the Fed buys it off of you because they bid the price up, which means interest, you know, interest and price are a seesaw. The, the higher the price, the lower the interest rate. So there's a point at which you say, I'm out. I'm not interested in it. And that bond anymore at 1.4% or something like that on the 10-year. So now you have to buy another asset. So what the Fed does is push you out on the risk curve uh, <clears throat> to take greater and greater risk. There's something else going on with all this as well. And every once in a while, I see an update on this. And that is the idea of a zombie corporation. Now, this is not a term coined by um, you know, fringe alternative conspiracy people. This is a term coined by the Bank for International Settlements in Basel, Switzerland. So this is the central bank's central bank. And they define a, a zombie corporation as a corporation whose profits are less than their interest expense. Um, kind of reminds me of the movie Broken Arrow, which is a completely forgettable movie. But there's a scene where they come in and like, Mr. President, Broken Arrow, sir. And he says, what the hell is a Broken Arrow? I said, sir, a nuclear warhead has gone missing. He says, I don't know what's worse, that a nuclear warhead has gone missing, or apparently it happens so often you all have a term for it. <laughs> so Zombie Corporation exists. Um, post-2020, post the amount of, um, uh, I should say, the market cap of all the zombie corporations out there has tripled from about $2 trillion to about $6 trillion. So there's an awful lot of really big companies out there that couldn't, so a zombie can't exist at all, except for really, really low interest rates and really forgiving credit markets. This is a company that doesn't make enough money to service its its debt by paying, let alone paying the principal. They can't even pay the interest. So they're sinking deeper and deeper into debt. And we pretend this is good. And these companies employ millions of people and they buy products from other companies that are you know profitable potentially. Um, all exist because they're getting subsidized credit at you know dirt cheap rates and you know when does that end well maybe it ends in 22 maybe it doesn't end in 2022 very hard to say when it ends um but clearly it's unsustainable it has to end at some point so who are some of the largest examples of zombie companies you know i have to say you, you caught me unprepared for that no that's fine that's fine specific then... uh specific issues but a lot of the s p5 i mean i don't follow stocks or analyze stocks that way but a lot of the S&P 500 companies are zombies. Okay. And then when you say uh, this is also, I'm out of the finance game, so I don't know all the terms that well. But when you say market cap, that includes basically the stock valuation of those companies and the amount of investors that are in that company, correct? Yeah. So actually, I think the uh, the chart that I saw recently was enterprise value, <coughs> which I if I recall, my finance definition is the market cap plus the value of the debt. So the debt is a negative. And so even net of all that, then that tripled, um, you know, in the last uh, uh, two years. Um, okay. And I, I, maybe this is also not something you were prepared to answer, but if you had to guess the percentage of companies in the S&P that would fall into the zombie cat, like the zombie business category, would you say it's less than 10%, less than 5%? No, it's like, it's like 20%. Okay. So then, and then also for forecasting, which is just interesting to me. So if 20% of the current S&P is zombie companies, if interest rates just went, you know, let's say to two or 3%, like do all those companies then get wiped out? Like, in other words, the only reason that they exist right now is that money is basically free so that they can pretend to keep their doors open by basically just paying their interest on their debt. But if yeah. they even just had to pay two or 3%, they'd have to close their doors. Yeah, I was going to say, so, so a couple of things go on if the interest rate goes up. We'll ignore... What happens if the credit market becomes less forgiving and these companies get shut off from credit entirely? Let's assume they still have just as good access as they do now, but they have to pay more, which means they're suddenly deeper into zombie territory, uh, which means they're going, they're, they're, um, their debt is, is growing even faster than it currently is. And there are a lot of current companies that are not zombie because the interest expense is relatively moderate that would suddenly be plunged into zombie territory if the interest rate were to go up. So if the interest rate really were to go up and stay up, I think that would um, that would be the the coup de grace, you know, the the death blow for an awful lot of uh, corporations out there. And then just a forecast: if that were to happen, like you said, if I guess twenty percent of the S and P, well, let's just say twenty percent is not going to disappear. I bet some of those are tech companies and have some growth factors that might keep them alive. But 
anything that's like a Toys R Us type thing, even though Toys R Us has already gone under. But I'm sure some of these zombie corporations literally are just retail stores barely holding on. Like th there's no reason for them to exist anymore. I think the movie theaters were kind of like that, you know, pre uh, pre pandemic was the, they got some hand handouts, which didn't make sense. If people don't want to like the government doesn't need to bail out movie theaters. They're not critical infrastructure industry, uh, let alone we probably shouldn't be doing bailouts. Anyways, talking in circles here. So going back to if the zombie corporations pulled out and then all their like orders and then they're defaulting on their debt. So then that would kind of be the beginning of a massive pullback in the S&P. Yeah. And then also, I mean, take movie theaters for an example, because it highlights the problem with, with uh, commercial real estate. Movie theaters are renting from the uh, commercial mall developers. And what happens when more and more tenants are, are pulling out or going bankrupt or whatever, then the developers are under greater and greater pressure. And they can, and some of those are zombies too, of course, and they can't service their debt and pay. So who are the bondholders on all this, you know, all this big real estate debt? Ultimately the banks, the pension funds, the um, insurance companies, um, you know, et cetera, all get suddenly hit by this, uh, you know, wave of defaults causing them to pull back. And then, right, you get this violent. Has commercial mortgages been turned into assets the same way like the subprime loans were? Like, I remember that part of what happened with the subprime loans was like they were kind of bundled together in their different tranches. But then that was kind of that debt was treated as like an asset in a way almost similar to like government bonds or cash. And so more money was kind of created off the back of those assets. Has anything like that, like, has there been pyramiding uh, on top of kind of these commercialized loans or have they not been, or, or is what happened basically in 2008 not happened with the commercial like loan market? The thing you don't have in the commercial loan market is a government guarantee or a government subsidy like Fannie, Freddie, FHA. <clears throat> that said, the, uh, the area that's called structured products where, you know, you take um, a bunch of these things, put them together and then slice and dice your way to you know, multiple different tranches, so-called, and you have a AAA tranche and, uh, you know, all the way down to whatever grade that they want to go, that area is alive and well. And so I don't know the specifics of how many real estate, you know, commercial real estate, you know, bonds are, are put into these things, but I'm sure that's got to be a lively, uh, you know, market space. Got it. Okay. So to recap, first gigantic risk sitting in the market for all the people out there that are just parking their money in there or putting more in, or they're all excited about it is that we've got a lot of zombie companies. And if the interest rate goes up or your lenders become a little more sharkish, you're going to have an issue while we're on the topic of interest rates. Uh, I mean, I keep seeing, you know, finally Powell went from, uh, we got transitory inflation to, we actually have inflation to, Hey, we're going to be tapering. Uh, what do you actually see from the Fed coming from this year? Do you think they're going to raise interest rates or because of everything you just said, they can't possibly do it? I, you know, it's funny. I was virtually alone in 2015, late 2014 into 2015, saying there's no way they can raise interest rates. And if they do, it will be by a very small amount and for a very short period of time. And that turned out to be right. Uh, now they think they're going to raise interest rates again. Um, all of the forces that are pulling interest rates down or even greater now than they were then, which is basically lack of a profit margin. I mean, every business that's thinking of borrowing money, you know, there's only an attractiveness to borrowing money on a downtick on the interest rate. Suppose you own a chain of hamburger restaurants and you're thinking, you know, you always have a spreadsheet going where you're like, can I open the next store? And then, <clears throat> you know, but currently the answer is no, because it's not profitable. It only becomes yes on a downtick in the rates. And all of a sudden, if rates go up, not only is there not going to be any borrowing, which means there isn't demand for fresh credit, which is one reason why the interest rates aren't going to go up, but you liquidate an awful lot of uh, uh, businesses out there. So when I look at, you know, why do people think interest rates are going to go up? Can I ask up? you a question on that? Because isn't yeah. there a little bit of a um, catch-22 there that part of why there's less of a profit margin is because of inflation? So your formula is somewhat distorted that like if you're looking at your hamburger company currently and you're like, I don't know that I can increase my prices that much and my profit margins seem to be thinner because I'm paying all this out, you know, on my raw supplies. So then the interest yes. rate going up, you would think it, like it, it, you know what I mean? It's like two sides of the same equation where 
part of the reason why you're not profitable and taking on the loan doesn't make sense is because of the inflation. So your profits aren't that good versus if the interest rate went up then you wouldn't have let, you know, you see what I'm saying? It's kind of like two sides of the same equation there. But this, that's absolutely true. But the same thing has been true even before everybody was talking about prices rising crazy. So before COVID, um, the same dynamic was true. And I like to point to um, the car companies are still offering 0% for 72 months. And why are they doing that? Obviously, it costs them money to give that subsidy. And as the interest rate uh, ticks up, the subsidy increases in cost to... Uh, so I did an article back in, I don't know, 2015 or 2016 or something, looking at Ford, estimating that the cost of that subsidy alone was about a billion dollars. 20% of Ford's entire profit for the year went to the, to the increasing cost of that subsidy as Janet Yellen was hiking rates from, you know, they'd been under under a quarter of 1% and she hiked them for a couple of, uh, you know, a couple of cycles. The increase in the cost of that subsidy was something like a billion dollars a year. Now, why did they keep offering that subsidy? And the answer is they knew that demand for cars would fall off a cliff if they increased the, the cost of the credit to the consumer, you know, proportionate. So they'd still be giving a subsidy as they'd been giving a subsidy when, you know, when uh, uh, the Fed funds rate was essentially zero, that was still a subsidy for them to loan car buyers at zero. But it was a bigger subsidy when the Fed funds rate went up to, what was it, two and a quarter, two and a half. Um, the reason why I did it, there's no demand for cars unless you can get the free credit. So today, you know, everyone looks at inflation um, and they assume because of Milton Friedman who said inflation is always a monetary phenomenon. Um, I break down and say, I think there's a lot of non-monetary forces that are pushing prices up right now. And so you always have regulations, which I call useless ingredients. But in addition to that, we have trade war fallout and trade war consequences, like rising you know, tariffs on lumber, for example. You know, Biden just doubled the tariff on Canadian lumber. Um, and then other countries are doing the same thing. And so you get all this retrenchment and suddenly every manufacturer is looking to pull their supply chain in and find you know less tax-heavy jurisdictions and so forth. Then you have green energy restrictions, which is really killing the Europeans and the and the British. So in Britain, simultaneously they passed two horrible laws, one that basically banned domestic production of natural gas, and the other that uh, required all the former users of coal and oil to switch to natural gas which no longer can be produced domestically and has to be imported. Then you add to that the shipping and logistics crisis in the wake of COVID, which I call lockdown whiplash, and you can't import anything, whether it's iPhones or oil or natural gas or whatever, and suddenly the price of natural gas is, is skyrocketing so badly that the fertilizer plants, so to make fertilizer, they use natural gas. Fertilizer plants shut down, which is gonna cause a food crisis not this year, because this year's harvest is obviously already in, uh, but for next year. So you have these non-monetary, um, but very significant, um, you know, forces for rising prices, which are sucking all the margins out of everybody, which, which is the, the factor that you pointed to. If I'm a restaurant, the cost of everything I buy is going up, but the willingness of my customer to pay a higher price on the menu isn't. So I don't have pricing power. So I'm just getting crushed. Compare and contrast that to the 1970s when manufacturers, restaurants, stores had pricing power. When they wrote a new price, that was it. And people chased that price up. And the more the price went up, the more people chased it up. It was the most perverse you know, thing that was you know, ongoing from you know, after World War II um, to about 1981. We're not in that world today. We're in a very different world. And that's why I certainly know apologist for either Congress's spending or the Fed's um, absurd policy making, but I, I guess you can put me in the transitory uh, camp for inflation because these non-monetary forces, some of them are gonna go away. I think there's gonna be a backlash against green energy restrictions. I think the logistics problem will be solved. And then as they do, um, you know, the pendulum will swing back the other way. So two questions. First is on uh, the green energy, because I think Biden, to some extent, did it here, too. I know he shut down the Keystone Pipeline, and it seems like uh, we've kind of uh, cooled on uh, our natural gas production. 
uh, my general theory here, and this is me kind of conspiracy brain, is that the largest players on Wall Street, like BlackRock and others, are heavily invested in ESG and they like this green energy stuff. And so they're kind of manipulating the game to make their investments profitable. When you look at what happened in Europe, uh, do you see this as just politicians that are really dumb and they don't understand the consequences of the policies that they enacted? And so they're going to get blindsided. You are going to see rising prices. They're going to get voted out and that will change. Or do you think they kind of knew that this stuff was going to happen, but you know, your really big players are forcing it down their throats and they've kind of been brought bribed or otherwise. And so, you know, it wasn't just stupidity, but there's some big players that are pushing this. You know, I'm, I'm sure there are big, you know, big cronies that are, you know, pushing all sorts of destructive stuff because that's, that's how the world works today. Um, but I do have to say, having met any number of politicians, both, you know, at the local level, the state level, federal and then uh, internationally, most politicians are really no smarter nor dumber than the general population. Um, and often, you know, dumber or at least have a more simplistic, have at least have a very simplistic understanding of the world. Uh, their understanding is really how to operate people. You know, these, these people are sharp operators. They learn how to sense the mood of a crowd, say the right thing, push everybody's perception in a certain direction. So they learn how to be charismatic. They learn how to think on their feet and, you know, manipulate sentiment. Understanding of economics, understanding of physics and energy markets. I don't think, I think very few politicians have the slightest grasp of that. So, you know, they're doing what is popular and they're doing what, you know, most people feel to be morally right. And um, when the result is, you know, the price of energy suddenly goes up, you know, 20x or 50x or something like that, then um, I think the voters are going to be very angry. Even the very voters who went along with this in the first place, yeah, green is going to create jobs, it's going to do this, it's going to do that. Wait a minute, you just made gas so expensive, I can't heat my house. I got to walk around with a parka in my house you know, during the winter because I can't afford to heat it. They're going to be pissed. And I think there's going to be a backlash against, you know, all these policies that, um, you know, basically put Europe into energy poverty. And I think a lot of Americans are going to be looking at that thing. Don't bring that here. It could be wrong, but that would be my expectation. There'll be a backlash against this as people say, no, we need energy that works. And, you know, the idea of an energy that doesn't work if the wind isn't blowing, the Europeans are sitting here praying for a windy winter. Really? <laughs> like, didn't we get rid of the era of sailboats where, you know, you could die at sea because... <clears throat> If, you know, if, if you if you stopped in the middle of the was it Sargasso Sea outside the Caribbean, um, and the wind the wind stopped, you'd run out of water and eventually everybody would die. Didn't we have the song, the rhyme of the ancient mariner about you know running out of water on a ship? Didn't we, you know, we, we built first steam power and then diesel power and then nuclear power to improve, you know, things to go back to a time when we're praying to the wind gods. Just, you know, I I, I don't think that's going to be popular. No, I, I agree 100%. Now, to dig into uh, your view of inflation a little bit. So I've definitely read quite a bit of the Austrian books. And uh, uh, in my understanding, when you print money, you know, at some point, uh, you will see inflation. It doesn't always happen right away. Uh, but the printing will cause inflation. That's always kind of been my understanding. Uh, so you're thinking that within this environment, unlike the 70s, there is some level of money that can be printed by government that won't inevitably cause inflation. What do you think it like, what, like what do you think has changed or how do you think inflation works that it like to you, it's not a monetary phenomenon. Like it's not just that printing money will cause inflation. So I, I differ a little bit from that view. Um, and I've, I've written and, and uh, you know, post online my own theory of interest and prices that the quantity of money is not itself um you know, causing rising prices or falling prices. What matters is the trend in interest rate directions, trend in, in interest rates. So that, that that problem has been studied going back to, you know, Wixel in the, in the 1890s. Gibson studied it. It's called the Gibson's paradox that everyone expects that if you increase the quantity, then you get increased prices. But what, what Gibson and others found was that prices correlate with interest rate and not with you know, quantity. But doesn't the interest, interest rate, rate environment? 
doesn't the interest rate revolve around the amount of money available? So it, you're like, in other words, even if you're pricing your inflation around where the interest rate is, I mean, well, maybe we're so far from a free market, the interest rate has nothing to do with the quantity yeah, of money. Exactly, exactly, okay. exactly. So, you know, one of my arguments against, let me, let me use an analogy to um, solar energy, and then I'll bring it back to monetary economics. If, if people that were promoting solar energy were honest, they'd be looking at the fact that in Seattle, you do not get the same watts per square meter of solar panel as you do here in Phoenix. And Phoenix probably doesn't get the same thing as you get in Albuquerque, which is probably drier and also is a mile higher in elevation. So you get to a place that has 320 sunny days a year at a, at a sunbelt latitude and low humidity and, and, uh, and everything else, it should produce a heck of a lot more energy, you know, per year per meter versus let's say Seattle where it's far north and obviously always cloudy. So in, in monetary economics, one would expect that in the gold standard, an increase in the quantity of gold, which comes from gold mining, would have different causes and different effects than in the fiat standard, uh, an increase in the quantity of fiat currency. It doesn't work the same and it shouldn't have the same, we shouldn't expect that it would have the same causes or the same effects. So what happens in our fiat system today is that the Fed buys a bond off the banks and then that is not causing prices to go up. What it causes is banks to go out on the risk curve and find something else to own. Um, and that causes you know other assets to go up. And um, so that's the first issue. The second issue is that 1933, Roosevelt made a move that I think was absolutely brilliant. I mean, evil, I want to characterize this as evil, not good. Brilliant is not a compliment here. Brilliant just meaning very clever. And he understood something at a pretty deep level, or at least his advisors and Keynes would have been whispering in his ear anyway in those days. Um, in making the dollar irredeemable, then all the dollars become nothing more than either bank credit or Fed credit. There is no such thing as less dollar supply or more than all those dollars that are available. Even if you're just holding the dollar in a savings account, you're lending it to the bank who then lends it to whomever. There's no way to pull credit back. You know, in the gold standard, if you pull your gold coin out, it forces the bank to reduce its investment. Today, there is no way um, the the saver and the and the so-called bond vigilante are detoothed, disenfranchised. You, you literally have no say anymore, which is why I say it was brilliant. It was evil, but it was brilliant in that, look, you know, going forward after that point, after 1933, they control monetary policy. It is fully centrally planned. What they didn't bargain for is that there's a, a dynamic, a market dynamic that's bigger than the Fed itself. So you get long periods of time of rising interest rates and rising prices, followed by falling interest rates and falling prices. So we had a big rising cycle post-World War II to 1981. We have a big falling cycle now. And so the monetary forces are actually pushing prices down, but they're currently being overwhelmed by non-monetary forces, uh, regulations, which I call useless ingredients, um, tariffs and trade war, lockdown whiplash, and green energy restrictions, all of which are pretty big forces at the moment, especially the last three regulations, more of a constant. But the other three, the green energy restrictions, the tariffs, trade war, you know, the fear pulling out of China for manufacturing. And if you're running supply chain for a major corporation, can you really trust anything manufactured in China at this point? What is the Chinese gonna government, government going to do next year? What is the U.S. government going to do the year after? What if Trump gets elected again? What is he going to do to China trade? And so if you're trying to plan five to 10 years in the future, if you're a semiconductor company, an auto company, aircraft company, whatever, you got to be pulling out of China, which means going to the next higher priced supplier in Malaysia, Vietnam, Mexico, wherever it is you might be going. So these forces are big, they're non-monetary, um, and I think they're overwhelming the, the monetary force, which is falling interest rates. All right. So I, I got a question from you just from a slightly different perspective. Um, but it, okay. So in your opinion, if the Fed controls interest rates and inflation revolves around the interest rate, right? Basically we're pricing inflation around the interest rate. It's not so much how much money is being printed. So like absent of anything else, does that, could it ever get away from the Fed or could the Fed control inflation indefinitely because they have control of the interest rate? Like there's really no way, 
like in your opinion, can it go belly up or since it totally revolves around the interest rate and the Fed has total control over that, it's kind of just a working system. Well, yeah, it absolutely can get away from them. Um, and I'll, I'll just appeal to Margaret Thatcher, who said, you know, socialism works until they run out of other people's money. So what what the Fed is doing is is taking your life savings and, you know, feeding it to companies to, um, you know, produce more at lower prices. So it's a, it's a process of capital consumption. And as long as we're consuming the capital, so think of it as, you know, you have the seed corn, which is, you know, being held securely in bins for, for next year's harvest, and you break out the seed corn and then parcel it out and everybody has a big feast and a big party. Well, while that lasts, the price of, of uh, food is cheap, but at what cost, you know, for tomorrow? So you get to a point when you've squandered the entire legacy of Western civilization, and then things will get very bitter. Um, so yeah, there absolutely is an end to this whole thing, but you know, to quote Adam Smith, there's a great deal of ruin in a nation. It doesn't happen. You know, they adopt some horrible policies and you think, my God, this is going to have horrible consequences. Not necessarily immediately. It's coming. So, I, all right. So I just want to make sure I fully understand what you just said. Uh, basically, because the government is able to give cheap capital to companies, they're able to produce and give us goods for cheaper than if that if the cheap capital didn't exist, which somewhat revolves around the interest rate, a low interest rate. But at some point, the government does not have enough money that it can continue to just lend out, you know, for nothing. Like at some point, there isn't enough money for them to create and just lend out. And so at well, that they control, point, they control the quantity of what we call money. But what they don't control is the real capital to back it. Right. So the, real, the real capital is being consumed. It's becoming more precious and more scarce. And eventually something something snaps, uh, you know, very probably. And then violent. when when that snaps, though, is then that is that is the at the snapping, do we then have like a hyperinflation or is it just a collapse and, you know, the currency is no longer even relevant? Well, I mean, those are two one and the same. Right. Phenomenon from looked at from different angles. So I wrote about um, what's going to happen to the gold market and its gold backwardation will become permanent. So, so then but. According to that analysis, you do kind of correct me if I'm wrong here, but in the long term, you do kind of come to the Austrian understanding of inflation that at some point, you know, it, the, the money printing does create a problem. You're almost looking at it more in the short term. The Fed has enough control, like in by the short term, I might you might even be saying 20 or 30 years that the Fed just might have enough leverage that that phenomenon of printing and then causing inflation doesn't kind of come to roost. Well, what I'm saying is, maybe to look at it this way, there are times at which when the Fed causes an increase in, in the, the rate of issuance of dollars, the people are taking those fresh dollars and bidding up commodities and, um, and consumer goods and everything in between. So I've written about in the late 1970s, my parents would go to the grocery store and whatever was on sale they would buy huge amounts of, like they'd buy a hundred cans of tuna fish. I was almost embarrassed because we'd have like one shopping cart with cans of tuna fish and then maybe like paper towels or Kleenex or something like that. And the other shopping cart was all the rest of the stuff we needed for the week. Right. Um, so they preferred, and, and that was normal for those days. People preferred a pantry balance to a bank balance. They were literally draining their bank accounts to, to stock up on, you know, relatively durable consumer goods. When corporations got in on the act, they were actually selling bonds to borrow money to increase their, um, you know, their hordes of both their input and raw materials and work in progress at every stage in the middle. And then finally, warehouses full of finished goods. Um, that's not the, the, the environment we're in today. So at that time, every time the Fed would issue a new dollar, it would fuel, it would have, it would have fuel to that fire and build on that feeding frenzy. And so the, um, the in interest rate was going up because the corporations were aggressively bidding up interest to get more dollars to increase their hordes of commodities um, and prices obviously relentlessly rising because there's a race between production of goods and you know purchase of goods not for consumption but actually for hoarding purposes and the hoarding was winning at the same time the rising interest rate means that every time um, 
you know, company's manufacturing plant reaches end of life and they have to build a business case for borrowing money to replace that plant. Well, at the new higher interest rate, that no longer made sense. And so production was going offline. So at that time, you, you had a you had a, a a vicious cycle of you know more dollar creation feeding more purchase of commodities and consumer goods, feeding higher interest rates, feeding you know decline in production you know in supply you know in, in the quantity of supply of goods essentially. But today we have the opposite. Every time the Fed does something, they're causing downward forces on the interest rate, which is a subsidy for more production of more kinds of things. And then, um, so I, my question is, suppose the Fed issues another million dollars worth of credit and that million dollars goes into building another hamburger store in your neighborhood, does that cause the price of hamburgers to go up or down? Uh, obviously down. Right. So it depends on where, you know, essentially where the flows are going and if the flows are going into productive capacity. So I wrote another article looking at this phenomenon of Amazon and Netflix and Hulu and a couple of other services, Discovery Plus, and um, you know, looking at how much money, for instance, Netflix was spending to produce, you know, original, you know, content. It's a huge percentage of their total subscriber revenue, and then Amazon is spending huge amounts of money on, you know, um, Game of Thrones and Wheel of Time and the, the new Lord Middle Earth, Lord of the Rings thing. Huge amounts of money on this. At the same time, somebody had taken a, a poll of um, customers of these services. Would you pay more to, um, you know, to get access to this content? Would you be willing to pay more, or would you be willing to suffer through some ads? And basically, pretty much most people said absolutely not. So we've we've gotten to the point where video content we're producing so much of it that the marginal utility, that is the the, the value of the next hour of video content, is approaching zero, and yet major corporations are throwing billions and billions of dollars into producing more of it. And that's just a function of the subsidy, the, 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 the falling interest rate is an ever greater subsidy to produce more stuff whose marginal utility is declining. So that's the environment that we're in today. Which well, also, um, which comes, which comes back to the point that that's why everything's relatively uh, less expensive is because the creation of it is constantly somewhat subsidized. Right, and with each downtick, the subsidy increases. And so, oh, which also means there's like an abundance of supply, which is a downward pressure on on price. Right. Okay. Or interesting. Even even an, even an excess of supply created by this by this subsidy. Right. So now the, the world was different in the 1970s, and it's, it's not directly comparable. And you can't just say the interest rate is the only variable, and therefore look at the difference in video content in the 70s versus today. But in the late 1970s. You know, you had three or four network TV channels and maybe cable TV, you know, if your parents were rich or you lived in the right places where even cable was even available. There was really very little good, you know, video content available. Um, and, and you know, and it was expensive. And I, I can definitely recall, you know, trying to watch TV on, on the weekend or something like that and just throw my arms up saying there's nothing on. So you have to go run and play in the woods because there's literally nothing on that was worth was worth watching. Today, there's so much of it that there's you know, no way in a lifetime you could ever watch all the stuff that's on. So what's very interesting about what you, what you just said is that I, I guess I've always viewed inflation or I, I, maybe even the classic definition is it's more money chasing less goods. But what you're pointing out is that as the Fed makes more money available, it's also making more money available to the corporations. So they're supplying more goods. So you almost end up with like it, you don't end up necessarily with just more money chasing more goods. You also end up with more goods for people to consume. So it, you don't just you know it, it's not like an instant inflation. Right. I was going to say so. There are times that when the Fed's increase in dollars is going into the purchase of goods for hoarding, and there are other times, which is now when the Fed's increase is going into the productive capacity to produce more goods. And if right. that's what you're getting, you're getting a, 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 a downward pressure on prices. Although, as I said, right now, there are four big non-monetary forces pushing prices up. So the net result on prices is rising. But you can't understand price action today simply in, in monetary terms. 
because there's that there, you know there's some really big uh, either new or temporary non-monetary forces pushing prices up i mean the trade war thing is a new thing the green energy restriction is a new thing and lockdown whiplash is certainly um temporary Got it. All right. So I don't want to hold you more than an hour at about the 40 minute marker. So I do want to look at a couple of the other uh, Fed activities over the last, you know, six or seven years that maybe you can give us the brief scoop on kind of what's happened. And then you can give us the case for gold. Um, so let's start with quantitative easing. I think there were about four four rounds and then it moved over into um, basically them just funding the repo market. Uh, but I just loosely know that these things have happened. I was thinking maybe you could kind of give us the the bigger picture of, you know, w w what is quantitative easing, how it's affected the stock market, and just kind of what it is. Yeah, so, so what the Fed does is they monetize the government's debt. And they've been doing that since 1913 when they were created. In 1913, that was actually illegal. I shouldn't say 1913. I think they were doing it by, by the mid-teens. Um, it was illegal at that time, retroactively legalized by a, a subsequent Federal Reserve Act. They buy government debt. So when they buy government debt, they issue dollars, dollars are the currency of the land. So that's monetizing the debt. Um, you know, post-2008, they had um, a couple of rounds, as you say, of so-called quantitative easing. So they gave a label to it. It was the same activity, although done at a greater scale and perhaps under the alleged a different alleged motive or purpose for it. But it's the same thing that the Fed has always done. That's what it does. It buys government bonds and issues new dollars, um, you know, in that process. So um, as you can imagine, when you're the Fed and you're intruding and interfering in markets to such a great degree, then you get all kinds of perverse side effects. People call it unintended consequences. I don't like the time or term unintended consequences because it puts the focus on the alleged intentions of the politicians who did it. And I think it concedes to them something that should never be conceded, which is their intentions were good, but somehow good intentions just went wrong. And I don't, I don't necessarily agree with that. But you have perverse um, consequences to these things. And one of which is that you took so many bonds out of the hands of the banks that are sitting on so much um, uh, you know, so-called excess reserves. So when the Fed buys from a bank, they give the bank a credit at the bank's, the bank has an account at the Federal Reserve itself, and then they put the cash in that account. Now that cash can't be, no one, since no one else in the economy other than another bank or certain other financial intermediaries is even eligible for an account there, the bank has very limited set of things of what they can do with it. So if you're, if you're a customer at JP Morgan Chase, you wire me a thousand dollars. I'm a I'm a customer at, at Wells Fargo. The J.P. Morgan Chase would transfer a thousand dollars of credit from its Fed account to the Wells Fargo Fed account. So you know it can be used for interbank settlements. If the bank needs physical paper notes, they can redeem some of it and then get a shipment, a pallet of of notes. And then if the bank wants to buy, you know, treasury securities, maybe a limited universe of other things. Then they can they can pay using those credits. But those credits can't be, you know, spent at uh, at Best Buy or uh, or Kroger supermarket. Um, so um, lost my train of thought where I was trying to make a point with all of this. Um, oh, so so quantitative easing. So so that's what the Fed is doing. They've given the banks so much of this stuff, and the banks are at such a loss as to what the heck are we going to buy? You know, so a bank has to make a net interest margin. It has all of the deposits from its, you know, retail account holders and all sorts of other credit, which has a blended average interest rate expense of X. The bank has to make X plus Y, where Y has to be big enough to cover all the expenses of running the bank, all the compliance, all the retail branches, all that is very expensive to run, and then hopefully have a profit, you know, at the end of the day. So the more the Fed is taking bonds off the, the, the bank's balance sheets, bonds produce interest for the banks. You take those bonds away and you give them, um, you, know, uh, you know, reserves held by the Fed. So the first thing the Fed had to do was to start to pay interest on reserves. Um, and then the second thing is they're saying, okay, we'll do reverse repo. So reverse repo is the bank, I'll, I'll state it in dry terms without giving any judgment and then I'll explain why this is absurd. The bank 
lends money to the Fed and the Fed puts up the treasury bond as collateral, that is a reverse repo transaction. And the Fed pays the bank interest for the privilege of borrowing the bank's money. And so you got to wonder, why would the Fed do that? Right, because if the bank holds uh, credit in the Fed account, that is already a loan to the Fed anyway. So what they're doing is they're giving a boon to, to the bank in the form of a little bit of interest rate subsidy to keep the banks alive, because otherwise in this world, the banks would have a net negative net margin. The banks would all be losing money and going out of business. So essentially, um, the banks have too much cash on hand, and they can't just hold cash because then they're losing money against the interest that they have to pay on the cash that they're holding. And so the right. Fed is correcting for that by allowing them to part the money back at the Fed and earn the Fed will pay them more so that they can capture a spread. But then if you take a step back, you have to wonder, well, what is going on here that they're sitting on so much cash that they have absolutely no useful utility for that the Fed is just willing to pay them an interest rate to, you know, essentially just keep just to have cash. So because and, and the other interesting part of it is that prior to the uh, um, prior to this pandemic, the, the, it wasn't reverse repos. They had to actually step into the repo market and start lending money to the banks, from what I remember. And they stepped in in a big way, like in March of uh, 2019. It was like a crazy, uh, it was like multi-billion dollars that they had to step in and lend to the banks to kind of correct the repo market because the interest rates had gone too high. So wh wh like, what do you think is the breakdown in the system that it kind of seesawed from you know, the Fed intervening in the repo market to lend cash to the banks and now they're trying to take the money off the bank sheets right. just so that yeah they're they're, they're careening from from one you know overcorrect like a drunk driver is careening from one side to the other always overcorrecting and always you know too late um so you said uh you know they use the term correct the the imbalance created by the previous thing i like to use a word that i that i coined called compensate compensation rather than correct so compensation is when you do the wrong thing on purpose, allegedly to fix something elsewhere that you cannot or will not properly correct. So for instance, you have a flat tire, compensation would be letting the air out of the other three. So um, what, what, what happened in 2008 is ultimately the Fed caused the crisis, but the government doesn't really want to admit that. They want to say, what well, was those, those, those damn banks taking too much risk and Glass-Steagall and all the rest of these things. So they started to create more and more regulations, limiting and restricting what banks can do. Well, the way that market used to work, if you were a bank um, and you needed a little bit more um, of certain kinds of assets, so it's not just you have assets on the balance sheet, but you had to show liquid assets like cash or um, certain you know, treasury bills, for example, then you would go to the repo market like, you know, so the regulators would check in, let's say once a, once a month or once a week or something. And then, you know, it was window dressing. You basically, you'd go to the market, you'd put up some other assets, repo them, um, borrow the cash you needed, pass your audit with the bank examiners, then unwind it and, and you know, on your merry way, which is perverse enough as it is. I mean, the whole idea of window dressing, just to please a regulator. If anyone thinks that's reducing risk in the banking system, well, I've, I've got a, I've got an NFT of a bridge to sell you. <laughs> um, so uh, what, the, what the regulators, regulators have been doing, and, and they've just been cranking down tighter and tighter and tighter, uh, ratcheting down all these regulations, uh, is even for the banks that had liquid cash, um, they made it harder and harder, you know, raising the opportunity cost essentially to lend that cash in the repo market. So the big banks, the JP Morgans of the world, that would have had the cash to lend to the other banks were suddenly prohibited by regulation from doing so. And so then you see the repo rate spiking. And I don't remember which fall it was, but it was September, was it 2018 or 2017? It's a couple of years back now that suddenly the repo rate spiked to 8%. seven or eight percent, something yeah. like that. Yeah. And um, that was just because of the desperation and they were, you know, fewer and fewer banks that had, you know, less and less cash that was not that they didn't have the cash, but the cash wasn't eligible under the new banking regulations, you know, to do that. So, so the regulators think that by making conditions harder and harder on the banks to make money, they know that the banks are going to do things that create greater risks. And they think they're going to control those risks 
by cranking up more and more regulation. And then, oops, you know, the, the problem bursts out from, you know, the next seam that nobody was paying any attention to. So they have a big lump under the rug and they keep shifting it around. And then every once in a while, the lump, you know, comes out from one edge of the rug or another, and then they frantically go and respond to that. So um, in addition to all of this, one of the problems is that in an irredeemable currency system, credit must grow exponentially. This is a feature, not a bug. And so what the Fed has always done in, you know, certainly in prior decades is they control liquidity to the banks. They control how much, you know, reserves the banks have. And obviously they can also tweak the reserve rate. And, you know, when the banks were unleashed and allowed to, uh, you know, lend to businesses and consumers, the banks would do so. We've now reached a point partly as a result of the lack of organic opportunities in this ridiculous economy and partly due to just the sheer trillions and trillions and trillions and trillions of extra credit that's been poured in or, may, or maybe more like a spigot of, of credit affluent spilling into the economy there's no way for the banks to deploy that stuff so um the first thing that the fed did was they um they lowered the reserve requirement to zero so everyone said oh my god this is going to be hyperinflation didn't do a damn thing why because the banks weren't reserve limited in their lending before that move so by removing that restriction that wasn't the restriction that was limiting the banks anyway so i think ultimately this drives towards a, a fed issuance of a um some sort of digital you know central bank digital currency for two reasons one they can inject credit directly which means they can make unwarranted and imprudent loans to all sorts of parties that shouldn't otherwise qualify for credit and then two, as the interest rate goes negative, uh, people are going to have an incentive to withdraw their, um, you know, paper banknotes from the bank, because if you're if you're facing minus one percent in the bank or zero percent for taking out paper bills, you'll take out the paper bills. You know, there's a, there's a threshold that everybody will say screw that. So um, by taking by if they say okay, paper is no longer legal tender, now it's a Fed coin that you have to use. That's cash. Then they can make the interest rate on the Fed coin. Just as negative oh, as the because it doesn't right. matter if it's in a bank or not it becomes a crypto right, where yeah. it's just like it's just a digital ledger so there's no storing it under your bed so that you're not paying a negative interest rate it doesn't matter yeah. owning That's the money right. is going to cost you money now if they go with a negative like you just said they go with a negative crypto uh and i believe just based on what i saw online i don't think you're a big fan of bitcoin uh which maybe we can get into next but i would think that that would be tremendously bullish for either uh, a case for gold that everyone's like, well, screw this, I'm done with the dollar or screw this, I'm done with the dollar. And, you know, something like Bitcoin really takes off. Uh, so two step process. One, so you you believe that they will create a digital currency and that it will have a negative interest rate, that that is coming, let's just well, say, in the next five years. The other way around, when when the interest rate eventually goes negative, negative enough for deposit accounts. So in Europe, you know, their deposit accounts at minus 75 basis points, 0.75. That's not really getting consumers to go empty their accounts. Like that's more like a, a, a fee, like a banking fee that people seem to be somewhat tolerant of. But as the right. rate continues to go negativer and negativer, there will be a threshold at which point people are going to say, screw that. Once right. that happens, they will have to create a Fed coin or else there will be a run on the banking system the likes of which we haven't seen since 1933 and that will destroy you know the entire banking system and the economy and everything else so they will feel they have to do it every one of these things they could try to reverse and go back to a freer market but there's no nobody wants that so every time that they the the consequences of their previous round of intervention cause further problems there's always a new round of interventions that are justified by the failures of the previous round. So then they say, well, we'll have a central bank digital currency and we'll do this and we'll do that. And, um, you know, and things just go until, but you're right. It is a strong disincentive to holding the dollar. I mean, the more, the more you're punished for holding the dollar, the more that people are going to say, well, I'm not going to hold dollars anymore. Then Screw that. Um, and then, and then I, I mean, we could also predict, though, if we lived in an environment where the U.S. went negative, every other major currency would go negative as well, uh, because right. it would seem to me that uh, 
at the moment, all these kind of every country is inflating in tandem and they got their interest rates in tandem. Uh, they're all kind of working together so that no one's currency gets too debased against one someone else's. So I would imagine if the U.S. goes negative, the euro's negative, who the hell even knows what China is doing? Uh, but then you would have to be outside of traditional currency to avoid that, which basically leaves you with gold or Bitcoin. That's right. And, and obviously other real assets that people are going to bid up. Ferraris, they're going to bid up wine, they're going to bid up artwork, Bitcoin, Litecoin, Ether, gold, silver, copper, palladium. I mean, you know, just and that's, you know, that's the beginning of, of um, uh, you know, what means is called the crack up boom, you know, a boom, but a boom that doesn't result in, you know, like normally if, if there's a lot of people that want to buy I don't know, let's say iPhones. What that what that does is it causes Apple to make more iPhones. Like in a free market, you don't buying doesn't cause shortages, it causes production. Um, but in in the in the final days of a failing uh you know fiat currency system, you get all this buying, but no production to back it up. So then everything, all the shelves are are, are scraped clean, and you have the absurdity of some guy will go into a shoe store and pick up 50 pairs of ladies' five shoes. Not because he has any need for them, but because he knows that at the end of the day, at least it's a shoe and there's a woman somewhere who, with a size five foot is going to want to buy it versus the cash in his wheelbarrow, which he knows nobody's going to want at any price. So that's the final that's the final destruction of of the currency and probably the government and civil society and everything, you know, collapses from there. Um, I, I think it's a pretty bleak scenario, but. All right. I've learned a lot. Some of this even went over my head where I'm going to have to go look up those articles. This is going to be an episode that I will have to re-listen to. Uh, before I let you go, though, why don't you tell the fans a little bit about uh, monetary metals? And I know you're, you've got an interesting thing going on where uh, you allow people to invest in gold and they can earn interest on it. So I'll let you kind of you know educate the fans about what you got working. So if you think that you know there's going to be this bleak scenario and this horrific collapse... There's two approaches you can take. You can either try to find the ideal place to hide and buy some land and buy a bunker or build it and set in some, you know, rations of food and tanks of water and all that stuff. Or you can say, how can I try to fix this? And so my crazy idea was to try to fix this. And I think the fix is to get gold and silver circulating again, as they had historically. And I think the key to circulation is interest. So people can deposit their gold and silver and interest on their gold and silver. If that scales up, that's the gold standard. And the reason is because that gold and that silver will be used. The only way to pay interest is to finance productive activity. So all the food we eat, the iPhones we buy, the cars we drive, the gas that we put in our cars, everything in our lives requires finance to, to produce it. And that's something that, um, you know, the cryptocurrencies cannot do because the, the values are too unstable. Nobody would borrow a Bitcoin knowing the Bitcoin could go up 10x before they repay, then you'd be bankrupted. But um, historically, people did borrow gold and silver to finance production. And um, we're recreating that market and people are, you know, businesses are borrowing gold and silver. And so that allows us to have this program where, you know, people can deposit their gold and earn interest on their gold in gold or silver and silver. Now, I got to ask, transacting in gold, it's awesome. But that's what they took down Gaddafi for. Uh, and I do think that the the U.S. machine is kind of interested in ensuring that, you know, people almost don't transact in gold. Does that concern you in any way? Like that you have that issue that the more popular be you become, the more they don't want you doing what you're doing? I mean, I, I guess you could say there's a certain risk they're going to look at it and say this isn't what we want. But um, I, I think there's a lesson to be taken from Uber which is when something becomes popular, it becomes politically more and more difficult to try, try to shut right. it down. So they've tried to shut down Uber, and I think I think we have to look at it now and say they failed. Um, so the so the idea is essentially you want to create a new uh, actual market for gold where it's being transacted as currency, and you understand part of that is that you're actually lending to businesses in gold, and that people can lend you gold, and you'll pay interest on it. So in other words, you're 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 creating the market for gold existing as an as like a usable currency well right now we're just focused on um, creating the market for yield on gold we call it the gold yield marketplace 
Um, no one is going to be buying that latte from Starbucks in gold or silver, um, you know, anytime soon. However, they're going to be, they are financing and will be financing more and more productive enterprises using gold rather than dollars. That is so the, key, the key tipping point to the whole thing. So how do people get started with you? If people are listening to the show and they go, listen, I, you know, I'd love to start, you know, buy into this idea, get some uh, interest on my gold. What's the, you know, what's, what's the funnel? They go to the website. How do they get in touch yeah. with you? Yeah, go to our website, which is monetary-metals.com. And then there's all kinds of information there and explainer videos. And you can either, you know, give us, give one of our uh, relationship managers a call or you can fill in a form and, uh, you know, we'll get back to you. The, the website is the, the key starting point. Nice. Start earning some interest on gold. Keith, this was uh I, I find these topics fascinating. Uh, like I, I, they're mostly over my head. So I really appreciate you taking the time and uh, giving me some insight. Thanks for having me. All right. Have a great day. Later. Take care, everybody.